The book of Galatians in our text today, beginning in verse number 11, reads this. Follow along. 1.11 says, But I certify you, or I assure you, brothers, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men. Uh, For I neither received it from a man, neither was I taught it, but I received it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my conversation, my lifestyle, in time past in the Jews' religion. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, sought to destroy it. And I profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals of my own nation because I was more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who had separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither did I go up to Jerusalem to them who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia, and I returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I abode with him there for 15 days. But the other apostles, I didn't see any of them except for James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I'm writing to you are true. Behold, before God, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. Verse 21, afterwards I came into the region, regions of Syria and Cilicia. Pre, I was preaching there, he implies. Verse 22, and it was, I was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now is preaching the faith which he once destroyed. Verse 24 ends the chapter by saying, and they glorified God in me. Another way to say that is, they glorified God because of his work in me. Which, by the way, is a great example to all of us, and it would be a wonderful prayer for us to pray every morning when we get up. Lord, may I live in such a way today May you work in my life so obviously today that people will glorify you because of what they see in me. That would be a good prayer. We ought to want to be that kind of believer. Well, in this passage, as you can tell, Paul is pretty intent to make sure that the people in the churches of Galatia know his story. In fact, I hope you'll write that down somewhere in your notes. This passage tells us Paul's story story. By the way, I love hearing stories of life change in Jesus, testimonies of how Jesus has changed people's lives. We just finished our series in Galatians, and I loved that, uh, not Galatians, this is the series in Galatians. (laughs) We just finished the series called Transformed, and I loved so much that series because uh, you told your stories of transformation, and I was so encouraged by hearing about how the Lord has been at work in your life. Those stories are always powerful. By the way, that's how I got my start in gospel ministry. I was saved when I was 16 years old, and when I was 17, about 17, I began to get some invitations to come to a youth group here or a Sunday school class there or maybe speak at a church over there. And the only thing they asked me to do was not preach a sermon because I didn't know how to preach a sermon. The only thing they asked me to do was just to tell my story. Just come share your testimony. Just tell us how Jesus has changed your life. And do you know that it was by telling my story that Jesus began to call me into a life of preaching his gospel? 
Stories are powerful. And every good life story or every good testimony has three elements. And Paul uses these three elements or he tells us his story in these three elements. Write them down quickly. The first one is our pre-conversion story. That is, Paul would say, this was the old me before I met Jesus. Every good testimony begins by telling someone what my life used to be like. And Paul does this in verses 13 and 14. He says, you know my conversation, that is the way that I lived, who I was. You have heard of my lifestyle in time past in the Jews' religion. How that I sought to destroy Christianity. He says, this is who I was before I met Jesus. I hated Christ and I despised Christians. And everything about my life was an effort to destroy, violently destroy Christianity. That's what verse 13 means when he says, I persecuted the church of God and I wasted it. He goes on in verse number 14 to say, I did this out of motivation because of my zealous, fanatical zeal for the Jewish religion, the traditions of my fathers, the legalistic laws and ordinances of the Jewish nation. So I was. Before I met Jesus, I was a zealous Jew who persecuted Christians. Then he moves from telling about his pre-conversion self, who I was before I met Jesus, to talking about the moment that he was converted. Now, write it down this way. We would say, this is how I met Jesus. First part of my story, this is who I was before I met Jesus. Second part of my story, this is how I met Jesus. Now, Paul does this in verses 15 and 16. And while he doesn't give specifics, we do know the specifics of his conversion story from passages like Acts 9, Acts 23, 24, 25, in that area. Um, We do know what happened on the road to Damascus. Paul doesn't get into the specifics in this passage, but what he does tell us is that there was this moment when God radically changed his life. Look at it, verse number 14. I'm sorry, verse 15. He says, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, to reveal his son in me and to me, that I might preach him among the heathen. He describes that moment when God called him to faith. Now listen, if you know Jesus as your savior, that moment exists somewhere in your past. There was a moment when you came to meet, to know Jesus. Well, Paul says this happened to me in the moment when Christ revealed himself to me. And notice how his pronouns change or his use of pronouns changes in verses 15 and 16 as compared to verses 13 and 14. When he's talking about his pre-conversion life, verses 13 and 14, he says, this is what I did. This was my path. This was my habit. This was what it was all about. It was all about him, all about what he used to do. But look at verses 15 and 16. He begins to use a different pronoun when he says, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's room. He called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him. Listen to me. If y'all are listening, shout amen. When you get saved your pronouns change. Because before you know Jesus, it's all about you. But after you know Jesus, it becomes all about him and his work in your life. A good testimony tells the story of who I was before I met Jesus. 
and it tells the story of how I met Jesus. Now, the third part, or the third element of a good testimony is the part that tells about our post-conversion story or how our lives have changed since we met Jesus. Paul would say, this is the new me since I met Christ. And what he tells us, beginning in verse number 17, is that after he met Jesus, his entire course of life changed direction. Before Jesus, he hated Christians and was on a path to, to imprison as many as he could. He meets Jesus and his life turns around and he begins to go in a different direction. Look at it, verse number 17. He says, when I met Jesus or when God revealed his son to me, I didn't go up to Jerusalem. I didn't remain in Damascus. He did just for a few days. But then he moves on, verse number 17 says, and he goes to Arabia. He goes into the Arabian desert. He then goes from Arabia back to Damascus and a period of three years passes. So he meets Jesus for three years. He has this, this time when he's learning. The Bible tells us in verse number 18, after three years he goes up, he meets Peter, the apostle Peter in Jerusalem, whom he's never met before. He goes and spends a couple of weeks, only sees Peter and the half-brother of Jesus, James. That's verse 19. Verse number 20 tells us then that he went to the north, to Syria and Cilicia, and he went there and he began to preach. And for a decade, he's preaching the gospel near his hometown of Tarsus. Now this is Paul's story. This is who I was before I met Jesus. This is how I met Jesus. And this is what my life has looked like since I met Jesus. I think you would agree. That's a powerful story. Well, do you know what? Your story is powerful as well. I had somebody come to me after the first service and she said to me, I want you to know my story. And she just really quickly told me her story. It's a powerful story of how she came to faith in Jesus. I was encouraged and challenged by it. And your story would encourage and challenge people as well. So I want to give you a challenge today, okay? I want you to write down your story. Before I met Jesus, how I met Jesus, and what my life looks like since I met Jesus. And here's how I'm going to help you to do it. This afternoon, I'm going to email all of you my story. I'm going to post it in our, in our uh, Brookstone uh, uh, network. And I'm going to email to you through that network my story. I'm going to tell you about my life before I met Jesus. I'm going to tell you how I met Jesus. And then I'm going to tell you what my life has been like since I met Jesus. And there's, then this is what I want you to do. I want you to use my story as a model, use Paul's story as a model, and I want you to write down your story. Write down what your life was like before you met Jesus, how you met Jesus, and how your life has changed since you met Jesus. And when you gather in your small group this week, and most of you will gather in groups this week, as I always say, if you're not in a group, let us help you get in a small group. But when you move out of rows and you get into a circle, a small group here at Brookstone, when you get in your group, I want you to tell your story. I want you to go to that group prepared to tell your story. Maybe there won't be time for everybody to do it and your group leader can say, well, you do it this week, you do it next week. But I want you in your group to tell your story. It will encourage the people in your group and it will help people who don't know Christ to come to know him. Your children need to know your story. Your family members and loved ones need to know your story. Your friends ought to know your story. Now, it occurs to me, even as I'm saying that, that it's absolutely possible. In fact, it's very likely that there are some of you who are here today who would say, but I don't really have a story. 
because I've never met Jesus. I've never really had that moment, Pastor, that you're describing like Paul had where I, I met Jesus as my Savior. And if that's the case, then you're in the best place today because I'm going to invite you to let him write your story today. I'm going to invite you to trust in Jesus as your Savior. Well, Paul tells us his story in Galatians chapter number 1. Now, he then moves, beginning in chapter number 2, Paul moves into dealing with the problem that I introduced to you last week. It's a really important issue, and so we're going to take a few minutes and talk about this, but I want you to begin by jotting down this note. We're going to learn about Paul's line in the sand. Would you jot that down? In this passage, in Galatians 2, Paul draws a line in the sand. Now, while you're writing that down, let me make sure you understand something that maybe you've never considered before. The Bible tells us in chapter number 2 that Paul had been preaching for 14 years before he went up to Jerusalem for any kind of meeting with the apostles. He had gone once after being saved for three years, and he met with Peter for only a couple of weeks. But that was an uh, an insignificant meeting, we'll say. His first real meeting to talk about the gospel message occurs 14 years after he came to Christ, after he's already been preaching. So Paul had been preaching for 14 years without ever receiving any formal training in the gospel message. Listen carefully. He never met the apostles of Jesus. He never had sat at their feet and been instructed in what the message of the gospel was. He had not ever met Jesus while Jesus was alive, and he never met his disciples. Paul preached for 14 years, are you listening, without ever opening or reading the New Testament. You say, well, how in the world could a preacher preach without reading the New Testament? Well, it hadn't been written yet, okay? Paul was going to write parts of it, most of it, a lot of it. And so he didn't have a New Testament to turn to. He didn't have the instruction of the apostles to guide his preaching. But he preached for 14 years. So you have to ask the question, where did he receive his instruction? How did he know what the gospel was and how to uh, clearly articulate it to others? Well, he tells us. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse number 11 and 12. He tells us where he got his message. He says in verse 11, But I assure you, brothers, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it from men, nor was I taught it, but the gospel which I preached I received by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at your neighbor and say, whoa. Tell him, whoa. That's a whoa moment. Paul never went to seminary, but he had the greatest seminary teacher ever because he received the gospel message from Jesus himself. Listen to these words, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Don't turn, verse 23. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says to them, for I have received from the Lord what I'm telling you. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians in verse three, he says, for I delivered unto you that which also I received from the Lord. Where did Paul get his gospel message? Where did he learn to preach? He learned it. 
from Jesus himself. In fact, you, you, you could do this. We're right next to the book of Ephesians. Just turn forward two or three pages to Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to how he says it in Ephesians 3 beginning in verse number 1. He says, Ephesians 3 verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which has been given to me for you. Listen, Paul says that God gave to him a special dispensation of grace that was for the benefit of these Gentiles who were going to hear the gospel from him. Verse 3, how that by revelation, by revelation, he made known to me the gospel or the mystery of Christ. Skip down to verse number 7. Wherefore, I was made a minister according to the gift of grace, the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power unto me, whom the least of all the saints is this grace given, so that I could preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says, I never went to seminary. I didn't have a New Testament. I never sat at the feet of the apostles. No man instructed me in this, but Jesus himself revealed to me the unsearchable riches of himself so that I could tell you the truth of the gospel. Now, might you imagine that such a special dispensation of grace, such a special gift of revelation might cause Paul to puff up in pride. I know things that others don't know that Jesus has taught to me alone. Well, it might. In fact, if you go back to Galatians chapter number one, you will come to the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number seven where Paul says, because of all this revelation, lest I should be exalted above measure because of the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now the point is, he says that because God has given me such special revelation, such clarity that I learned from no man, but I learned it from Christ himself, and God knew that that might cause me to rise up and swell up with pride, then he allowed this thorn in the flesh to come and to keep my feet firmly planted on the ground. Paul received his training from the risen Christ himself. And I would suggest that much of that training came in those three years when he was in solitude in Arabia, immediately following his conversion. Now, because his gospel came from the lips of Jesus himself, Paul then goes on in Galatians to say that his preaching, his message of the gospel, his proclamation of the gospel is the gold standard by which all other preaching is to be measured and by which all other believing or all other teaching is to be measured. Do you remember it from last week? It's chapter 1 of Galatians in verse number 8. Look at it again. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, if anybody preaches any message other than the message I'm preaching, that's, his, that's what he's saying, let him be accursed. My message is the right message, that's what he's saying. My message is the standard. And if anybody preaches a message other than the gospel that I preach, let him be accursed. Well, obviously, people were preaching another gospel. This is the whole point of the letter 
It's what he says in verse number seven. There are some who are troubling you and they're preaching a gospel other than what I have been preaching. And that erroneous preaching, that erroneous message that was being delivered, different from the message Paul was delivering, that is the Galatian problem. That's what he's dealing with in this letter. In fact, it's not only a problem for Galatia. This problem will become the very first point at which there will be a doctrinal division in the early church. And they have to resolve it. So let's talk about the problem. What exactly is the competing message and the problem that arose from it? Y'all doing okay? If you are, would you shout amen? Okay. Now, a couple of things to know. If you're going to understand the problem that Paul is dealing with, you first of all have to understand the makeup of the early church, okay? So recognize this. All of Jesus' original followers, his original 12 disciples, of those 12 men, do you know how many Gentiles were in that number? Zero. Yeah, they're all Jewish men, okay? So all of Jesus' original followers are Jewish people. When you then take those original 12 and really the 120 that were with them, that original group of Jewish followers, and you begin to trace the development of the early church in the book of Acts, you learn something pretty amazing. In fact, I want you to, we've got time to do this. I want you to go back to Acts chapter number two. Would you do it? Turn to Acts chapter number two, and I want to take you to the day of Pentecost. So this is the day the church is born. The first Christian church sermon is delivered by the Apostle Peter. Prior to this, there are 120 Jewish believers in Jesus. But in Acts chapter 2, verse number 41, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, and verse 41 says, And they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them, this this is the followers of Jesus, grew by 3,000 souls. So one day there's 120 Christians... Jewish people. The next day, on the day of Pentecost, the church grows by about 3,000. There's 3,120 followers of Jesus now. Do you know how many Gentiles are among the 3,120? Zero. They're all Jewish people. All Jewish men, all Jewish women. Okay? Look at chapter 2, verse 47. These were praising God. They had favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to the church daily such as should be saved. People are being saved every single day. Christ, new, new Christ followers are coming to faith every single day. Do you know how many of them are Gentiles? None. They're all Jewish people. Okay? If you keep reading, go to chapter 4 and verse 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Howbeit many of them which heard the gospel, heard the word, believed, and the number of the men, not counting women and children, the number of the men who believed was about 5,000. So on this day, there's 5,000 more that are swept into the kingdom of God. All Jewish men, plus Jewish women and children. Chapter number 5, verse number 14. You see that verse? He says, and believers were the more added all the time. More and more people are being saved. Multitudes of men and women. Out in the margin of your Bible, next to chapter 5, verse 14, just write this word. Jews. They're all Jews. Go to chapter 6, verse number um, 1. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, 
There arose a murmuring of the Grecians and the Hebrew against the Hebrews. Now, these are not Greeks. These are Grecian Jews. They're Hellenist Jews or, or Jews who are in, the Jew, or in the, Hebrew, I'm sorry, the Greek culture, the Hellenist culture. They're still Jews. But the number of the disciples is growing, and it's only growing by Jews. We could easily establish that the first 10,000, maybe 20,000 or more the first 10 to 20,000 Christians in the early church were all Jewish men and women. Which means that every Christian was also a Jew who also kept the law. That means that every Christian followed the law of Moses. Every Christian only ate kosher foods. Every Christian male had been circumcised. Every one of these born-again believers in Christ are also Jewish people. Until Acts chapter 10. Go to that chapter. In Acts chapter number 10, everything begins to change. Look at Acts chapter number 10 and verse number 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea. His name was Cornelius. He was a, a centurion of the band called the Italian Band. Everybody look up here. Cornelius is a Roman from Italy. You don't get any more Roman than a Roman from Italy. He was probably from Rome. You don't get any more Roman than a Roman from Italy. He was a Gentile. Look at your neighbor and say, Mamma mia. Because <laughs> this is going to rock their world. This Gentile Roman centurion is being drawn by the Holy Spirit to put his faith in Jesus. Now, if you know Acts 10, it's this beautiful story. We won't take the time to read it. God sends Peter down there to preach the gospel to him. Look at verse number 24. And on the next day when they entered into Caesarea, that's Peter and his company came to Caesarea. Cornelius was waiting for them. Maybe Peter was thinking, okay, I can talk to one Gentile about Jesus. Verse 24, but Cornelius had called together all of his family and all of his close friends. It was a house full of Gentiles. Peter probably walked in the door and stepped back and went, whoa, that's a house full of pagans right there. <laughs> they were eating stuff Peter couldn't eat. They were, they were listening to music Peter couldn't, had never listened to. They, this was a pagan crowd. And God said, y'all with me? Say amen. God said, preach, son. And Peter preached. And if you look at the end of chapter number 10, go to verse number 44. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. They, they were saved. They put their faith in Jesus. Verse 45, and they that were of the circumcision, the Jews that were with Peter, saw the Gentiles being saved, and they were astonished. Do you know what the word astonished means? Gobsmacked. They were like, I can't believe this. God is saving Gentiles. And thus begins the problem. Because this forced these Jewish believers to begin to wrestle with some really tough questions. Questions like, do we really want Gentiles in our church? Do we really want, can they even be saved? I mean, really? And if they could be saved, do we want our church messed up by those people? You, you, you following me? 
Do, do we want their kind mingling with us? They, they begin to ask questions. Well, if, if they can be saved, do they have to become Jews first? Because all the Christians are Jews. So do they have to become Jews? Do the men have to be circumcised? Do, do they have to change their diet and they have to start eating all the stuff that we eat and not eating all the things that we're not allowed to eat? Should they start celebrating Passover and, and following and celebrating all of the Jewish feasts that we celebrate? In short, here's what they're asking. They're saying, we've kept the law of God all our lives. And now we're trusting in Jesus to be our Savior. But if the Gentiles trust in Jesus to be their Savior, do they then have to start doing what we've always done and keeping the religious rules that we've always kept? Which, by the way, led to an even more difficult question, which was this. If a Gentile can be saved without keeping the law, then the Jews had to ask the question, well, what about my law keeping? Do I have to keep keeping the law? And is all of my law keeping of no effect at all in my salvation? And this is where the problem arose because it brought up this eternal and important question. Are we saved by grace or are we saved by works? Are we saved by faith or are we saved by doing? Do we have a gospel of grace or do we have a message of legalism? That's the problem that Paul is dealing with. And some people in the early church landed on this side of that argument and other people, Paul included, landed on that side of the argument. And Paul, in this passage, draws a line in the sand and he says, we must answer this question. Now, the Judaizers, the legalizers, the ones who said that the Gentiles would have to keep the law, here's their ethos. Here's the, the legalism ethos. It's found in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, but some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the legalistic ethos. If you don't keep the rules, if you don't keep the law, then you are not saved. Paul, on the other hand, his ethos is found, go back to Galatians chapter 2 and look at verse 16. You'll find it there where Paul writes to these Galatians, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we who are Jews have believed in Jesus, so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Do you see the divide? On the one hand, if you don't keep the law, you can't be saved. On the other hand, you can't be saved by keeping the law. And that is the problem. And so Paul deals with this in the Galatian church. And in fact, he writes in Galatians chapter number two that this question has already been dealt with. Let me read it to you. Look at Galatians chapter number two, beginning in verse number one. He says in that verse, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. They went with me. I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel that I was preaching among the Gentiles. I did this privately to them, which were of reputation or the influencers, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Now here's the point. Here's what Paul says. 
He says, after 14 years of preaching salvation by grace alone, it was time to get the apostles to speak into this. So he says in in verse 1, I went to Jerusalem. Now, he had been previously, he had been nine years earlier, but only for two weeks by himself where he met Peter. Now he goes back, nine years later, he takes with him Barnabas, a Jew, Titus, a Gentile, both Christians. They go up and they meet with Peter, James, and John, just those three. It's a private conversation, and in that meeting, Paul lays out for Peter, James, and John, this is what I'm preaching. Do you guys agree with this or not? I'm telling the Gentiles they don't have to keep the law. They just need to trust in Jesus. Are we in agreement? Now, the text does say that while he's having this meeting, some legalizers burst in and they say, you've got to tell them to keep the law. And this argument goes back and forth and he says, I'm not listening to them for one second. I will not put up with that for one minute. Why? So that the gospel might continue. Look at verse five. We gave place to them by subjection. No, not for an hour. So that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He says, this is, this is a hill to die on. I'm not going to listen to that because the gospel cannot be perverted. Well, he goes on in this passage. I won't take the time to read it all. You can read it later. But he tells them in Galatians chapter 2 how that Peter, James, and John agreed with him. They agreed with his message of salvation by grace. And they said to him, in fact, he says in verse number 6, they added nothing to me. They didn't say, no, add this to your message. They must do this or that. They added nothing. In fact, verse 7 says, rather on the contrary, they said, go preach, man. Go tell the Gentiles they can trust in Jesus. And so you know what he does? If y'all listen and say amen, he goes and preaches. He goes back to Antioch. They ordain him and Barnabas to gospel ministry. And the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul is launched out of this permission that he gets from Peter, James, and John to go preach salvation without the works of the law. And he goes throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He's going from city to city to village to village. He's preaching the gospel. And i got to tell you, Gentiles are getting saved everywhere. It's a, it's a Gentile revival. And they're praising Jesus and having pork chops. And it's making the legalists furious because they're claiming salvation, but they're still not keeping the law. And there's so much animosity that the very first Church council is called to to settle the question once and for all. It's called the Jerusalem Council. I'm going to take you back to Acts one more time. We're almost finished, so hang with me. Go to Acts chapter 15 very, very quickly. Let me show you what happens at the Jerusalem Council. Acts 15 verse 1. It says, certain men came down from Judea, taught the brothers, saying, except you be circumcised according to the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small argument or disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. When they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all these things that God was doing through them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which were believers, who said that it was needful to circumcise those Gentiles and to command them that they keep the law of Moses. But the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, much arguing about it, Peter rose up. And he said to them, men and brethren, 
You know how that a good while ago, God made a choice among us that the Gentiles would first hear the gospel by my mouth and believe. He's referring to what happened with Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10. He says, you know that God saved them by grace. Verse number eight, and God which knows the hearts, bear witness of them, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. He made no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, and he purified their hearts by faith. Verse 10, so he says to these Jews, so why do you tempt God and put a yoke upon the necks of these Gentile disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? I love this argument by Peter. He says, why are you telling them they have to do what you don't even do? So the conclusion, verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. That's the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council. That salvation comes to us by grace, through faith, plus nothing, minus nothing. If you've come here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I've got the best news you're ever going to hear in your life. Listen to me. You can be saved. doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what your failures are. You can have your sins forgiven and make heaven your home. And you have no obligations at all except to trust in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. That's the gospel. And that was the hill. Paul was willing to die on. That's the line in the sand. It's by grace, through faith, plus nothing. Listen, if you don't know Jesus today, stop trying to get better and give your heart to Christ. Stop trying to be good and trust in the only one who's good and the one who bore your sins to the cross. We'll go back to Galatians and let me close very, very quickly by just Detailing what Paul then, how Paul describes an encounter that he had with Peter, where he he reveals to us this insidious, I want you to write this down, this insidious nature of legalism. Remember, Paul had gone up after three years' salvation and preaching. He went to meet with Peter for two weeks. They talked about this, I'm sure. Then, after it had been, say, 14 years, nine years later, he went again with Barnabas. And and, uh, Titus. And they talked about it. And Peter and James and John agreed, yes, go preach the gospel. There's no legalism. It's all free grace. And then he goes and preaches on his first missionary journey. And now there has to be this Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. He comes back again. They have this big church meeting. And the church all agrees. Peter gives the great speech. It's salvation by grace. And then in Galatians chapter 2, verse number 11, he says, we had a problem when Peter came to Antioch. But to be honest, we don't know exactly when this was, if it was before or after the first meeting, second meeting, third meeting. We don't know. But there was a day when Peter came to Antioch. And while one would have thought that legalism had been killed in the heart of Peter, it came back. This is the insidious nature of legalism. It's like a snake in the grass. It'll slither into your life and you don't even realize it. And you run it off, but you got to keep your guard up because it'll come back. You kill it, and another one will show up. It's what legalism does, and it's what happened with Peter. He says in chapter 2, verse number, back in Galatians, uh, chapter number 2 and verse number 11, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him face to face because he was to be blamed. 
For before certain ones came from James, that's Jewish believers from Jerusalem, he did eat with the Gentiles. Now that doesn't just mean he sat beside them at the table. It means he ate what they were eating. He ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, when these Jewish believers came, he withdrew himself from them, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Peter acted hypocritically. You know why? Because of fear. Write this down. Legalism is fueled by our fear of rejection. We are afraid that if we don't live in this legalistic way, follow these regimen or legalistic rules, then somehow somebody is not going to accept us. And so we, we stay bound up so that we'll be accepted by other people. And sometimes even thinking that God accepts me more based on my behavior rather than based on his grace. It's fueled by fear. Peter was afraid. I don't want to be sitting next to these Gentiles. He'd been enjoying meals with them, bacon, eggs, you know, I don't know, whatever. He'd been having these meals, and he heard that James had sent some Jewish believers down, and he's like, um, I'm not going to be able to make it today. What are y'all having? Love the pork chops, but I can't come. So that when the Jews from Jerusalem got there, they're believers in Christ, but they're bound up in this legalism. When they show up, he's not seen mingling with those Gentiles. It's fear. Number two, legalism destroys authentic fellowship. It separates people. Look what happens, verse number 13. The other Jews acted hypocritically likewise insomuch that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Not Barnabas, surely. Barnabas is the son of consolation. I mean, he's like as good as it gets. He's this great follower of Jesus who loves Paul and he loves the Gentiles and he's been on this missionary journey with Paul and preaching to Gentiles and even Barnabas. Withdrew him. Do you know what this is what legalism does? It breaks fellowship. It causes us to not, to, to not fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ and then others separate because we separated just like Barnabas did because Peter did. Thirdly, legalism des, uh, denies the truth of the gospel. This is what verse number 14 says. When I saw that they were not walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I confronted it. Here's what happened to Peter. It's what happens to us. We trust in Jesus for salvation. We believe it's salvation by grace alone. And then we begin to live the Christian life and we begin to walk with a very legalistic attitude and excluding people who aren't just like us. Okay? And because of that, we're walking, we're saved by grace, but we think we're sanctified by keeping the law. Paul deals with this. We'll get to it in a week or two in Galatians. Having begun in the Spirit, are we then perfected, he asks, in the law? So this is the trap of legalism. He asks such a great question, and I'm done, but verse number 14, he says to Peter and the others, if you being a Jew are willing to live like the Gentiles, which Peter had been willing to do, he'd been willing to, to, to uh, eat with the Gentiles and, and live like the Gentiles, he says, if you're willing to live like they live, then why are you compelling them, whom you're willing to live like, why are you compelling them to live like you? Why are you compelling them to live like a Jew? And interestingly, it's the only place in the New Testament, the Greek word that's translated in your English Bible do, uh, to live as the Jews is the Greek word eudaizo. 
Judaize, to take a person and Judaize them to make them live like the Jews. Here's the message. Paul fought the first battle within the early church to say what is truth? What is the truth of the gospel? And the truth of the gospel is that you and I cannot advance one inch toward heaven by our own merit. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. If we were the best person that we had ever encountered, if we were the top of the stack and lived a life of of near perfect righteousness, we would not advance our movement toward heaven one inch. We are hopeless and broken and lost in our sin. And nothing that we can do will ever change that. And Paul's gospel is, so Jesus took our sin and bore it on the cross. Now just trust in him and you will be saved.